Well, it's good to see so many of you uh, this morning. Our passage comes from the gospel according to John, and it contains, without a doubt, the most famous verse in this book of John. Some would even argue that it's the most famous verse in the entire Bible. Um, in fact, if you go to almost any sporting event, you, you'll see someone holding a sign which simply says, John 3.16. You've seen those, right? I can remember as a kid watching baseball on TV and seeing a John 3.16, not being churched, I had no idea what that meant. I don't know how it was like a time of the day or the game was supposed to start or was it a, the, the section they were looking for John and come John at three, section 3.16. I didn't know, but it's one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. Um, it says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, you can see why this verse has kind of risen to the top. I mean, it's beautiful. To find one verse that communicates a full thought, I mean, that's, that's already challenging, right? A lot of verses are just incomplete thoughts, sentences, but this is so beautiful. It's so rich. It's full of hope and a promise to us. It's absolutely glorious. But what happens when we put John 3.16 back into its original context? I mean, who was even speaking right now in John 3.16? Who said that phrase that I just read? Who's the audience? Who's listening? What's before it? What's after? You know, most of us don't really know what's around John 3.16. Well, this morning we have the joy to put John 3.16 back into its context and see one of the most profound dialogues that has ever taken place. John 3.16 comes from a conversation between Jesus, who's, he's the one speaking there in verse 16, and one of the most brilliant religious leaders, not just in Jesus' day, but maybe ever. So let's turn to John 3. Let's look at this dialogue together. But before we jump into chapter 3, I want us just to just go back. Maybe that's scroll back. You might have to flip back to the end of chapter 2. I want you to see this context. So this is our, I think, fourth week in this, in this series of John's gospel. And I've mentioned this several times already. But the author, John, has brilliantly crafted this gospel. See, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they read more like history. These are just things that are happening. John reads more like literature. John will make these intentional, brilliant word plays to draw the reader's attention to something that John wants to highlight. So he does this at the end of chapter 2, so I don't want us to miss this. I think it gives us a good bridge, a good transition into chapter 3. He's setting up the reader to see something more than just the words on the page. So let me pray for our time, and we'll walk through this passage together. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for this morning. Um, we know that every Sunday when we gather together, we are going to boast about the cross, the resurrection, what you've done for us. So Lord, we want to do that again this morning. We want to make much of you. Father, that you loved your creation so much that you gave your only son, that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. And so, Lord, we come today knowing that life is from you and nothing else. Give us ears to hear 
eyes to see. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 2, verse 23. This is where we ended last week. So let me pick back up there. It says, verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So this is where John begins his his word play. And I think we tend to miss this simply because our, of our English um, translations. The, the word believe here in verse 23 is the Greek word pisteo. Okay? So now the word believe in English has many different definitions. Like first, you can believe in the Easter bunny. Right? Okay. So meaning that you accept this thing, the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus or George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, or any other historical figure, you accept those things to be true. That's how we can use the word believe. And so this is what a lot of people actually mean when they say they believe in Jesus. They believe in his existence. Um, This is even what... um, Even Satan, Satan would believe in Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world? People would say, yeah, I believe that he died for the sins of the world. So would the demons. The demons believe that Jesus would have died for the sins of the world. So that's the first definition. Second English definition of this word believe was like to think or assume. Like, for example, if I were to say to you, now, I don't believe we've ever met before. You know, it's like a, a recall. Um, I think or assume. So you could use the word believe that way. The third way we use the, believe, the word believe is to mean to trust. Let's say um, it's springtime, so my mind is baseball. I've been at a baseball field every day. For, I can't remember the last time I haven't been at a baseball field. But let's say it's the last inning. We're down one run. There are two outs. Runners on second and third, and I call timeout. I walk up to the batter, and I say, man, this is it. You've been practicing hard. You've been working at home. I believe in you. You know, that kid doesn't leave that conversation thinking, man, I'm so glad my coach accepts my existence. <laughs> that, that kid leaves that conversation thinking, wow, my coach really trusts that I can get a hit right now and win this game for us. See, out of those three English definitions, only the last definition describes saving faith, this idea of trust. So let's look back at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed, pisteo, in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So which type of belief is this? First, second, or third? We don't quite know yet, so let's keep reading. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I'm guessing if you're looking down at your Bibles, most of your translation said something similar to what I just read. That Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The word entrust just so happens to be the same Greek word used in verse 23, which was translated just one verse before as believe. 
So there were many who believed, verse 23, pisteo in Jesus because of the signs, but Jesus did not believe pisteo in them because he knew what was in man. See, this was not saving faith. We usually think of people in like two categories. We think people are like pro-Jesus, anti-Jesus. Here there are many people who believed in him, but Jesus knew better than to believe in them. These many, they just like the signs. They just wanted to see a good show. And you'll see that in John's gospel. There'll be a group that just want to see more. Do it again, Jesus. That's pretty cool. Do the bread thing again. Do the water thing again. They just like the show. So chapter 2 ends with John saying, Jesus knows what was in man. We now come to chapter 3 where we're introduced to a man. Look down at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. In verse 1, we were introduced to this man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, which means he was a super important, hyper-religious guy who knew a lot about the Old Testament. He was basically a first century pastor, maybe in our context. As a Pharisee, he would have been highly respected. But not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, we see here he's also a ruler of the Jews. This meant he was a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 Jewish individuals. They would come together, and they were basically like, maybe in our context, think of the United States, this would basically be if we combine Congress with the Supreme Court. And this 71 group of individuals served this um, institution called the Sanhedrin. So Pharisee, ruler of the Jews, and then in um, just Jewish writing, the Jewish Talmud lists Nicodemus as being extremely wealthy. So we have this guy, extremely wealthy, highly influential, hyper-religious. Verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the first time we see this phrase, born again. Nicodemus, we see, calls Jesus a rabbi, which simply means teacher. It's a term of respect. It seems like Nicodemus is honestly intrigued by Jesus. He says, no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And then notice here that John says that he comes by night. Why does John mention this detail? These are the kind of details that we don't want to overlook in John's gospel. So what is John doing here? Well, there's a few possibilities. First, it could be just that Nicodemus knows that the other, the Pharisees are very skeptical. So he's afraid, like, I don't want to go there by day. They're going to see me. Um, I'm going to go by night so no one else will see me. Maybe that's what he's doing. Or there could be another wordplay here that John's doing. See, all throughout this book, John uses this contrast between light and dark. He did it in chapter 1. Our call to worship this morning was beginning that contrast. A little later in this chapter, in verse 19, we read, And this is the judgment, 
the light, which we saw in chapter 1, was Christ. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So is John using the word night here? Nicodemus is coming by night. Is he using this phrase here to draw our attention to the fact that maybe Nicodemus is this highly religious guy, super important man, but he's still not walking in the light. He's walking in the dark. Possibly. Well, Nicodemus, he's, he's intrigued by Jesus' statement about being born again. So he asks Jesus this follow-up question in verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into, the, in, into his mother's womb and be born? So either Nicodemus is either struggling to follow this metaphor, or maybe he is following it, but is just honestly struggling with how someone can get a second chance. You've done all this bad stuff. How in the world can you start over? Jesus answers in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus looks at one of the most wealthiest, most powerful guys in all of Israel, and he tells them that unless he and his religious friends are born again, they will all perish. It would take some extreme boldness for Jesus to look at this guy and speak this way. I love that Jesus did not cower from hard conversations. He cared enough about Nicodemus' eternal state to say something that might actually offend Nicodemus. Verse 5, Jesus gives us the answer to how we are to be born again. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you just read that at face value, that doesn't really help. But what what does that mean to be born of water and the spirit. Someone suggested maybe he's talking about the water, you know, in the mother's womb when it water breaks. So that's the first birth. Then born of the spirit is the second birth. But I believe Jesus is actually referencing an Old Testament prophecy. Um, there's an Old Testament prophecy found in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 says this. So God's speaking here to Ezekiel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and call you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This seems to be what Jesus is referencing here when he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So how are we to be born again? We need to be cleansed. We need washed because our sins are filthy. We need to be forgiven of our sin and receive this new heart, which only comes from receiving God's Holy Spirit. See, God takes out your old heart and gives you a new heart. 
See, some of you, 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 you came to know Christ later in your life. You remember when your heart loved the things that God didn't love, right? I can remember that in my life. Then God gives me a new heart, and all of a sudden, like, I want to read the Bible. I want to go to church. Those are things only God can give you. That's, those are, that's a sign of having a new heart. God's doing a work. So he's removing the old heart, giving you a new heart, much like we saw last week, how the water was transformed into wine. You and I need to be transformed into something new. That's what it means to be born again. You become something new. Now, in verses 9 through 15, Jesus makes another Old Testament reference that Nicodemus, and remember who he's talking to, it's him and Nicodemus having this conversation. Jesus uses all these Old Testament references, things that Nicodemus would have surely known. He would have known the Ezekiel 36 passage. He would have known this reference that Jesus makes here in verses 9 through 15. But I don't want to go there quite yet. I want us to skip 9 through 15, go back to John 3, 16. I'm going to wrap up this morning back in 9 through 15. Thinking of John 3, 16, um, in his book, The God Who's There, D.A. Carson gives incredible insight to John 3.16. I just want to share with you Carson's four points from John 3.16. So let's read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, even though I didn't grow up in church, even though I, I haven't really grown up in King James Church, for some reason, the King James verse, like, I have to, like, look at this and not quote the King James verse. Any of you, like, you have that memorized? That's... So the first point that Carson says from verse 16 that we see is we see the object of who God loves. So first point is we see the object of who God loves. Who does God love here in this verse? For God so loves the world. Now John's understanding of the world might be a little bit different than your understanding of the world. When you think of the world, you might just think of just, you know, the number of people and the this big ball that we live on. When John says the word world, he's talking about the state that we are in. That there are people like you and me who have rebelled against the holy God. That's the world. So God loves the world. The Bible does not paint a good picture of the world, of mankind. We are rebel sinners. But God still loved the world. You know, it's really easy to love someone who's lovable, right? It's not hard for me to love my wife. Like, she's incredible. I love waking up next to her, getting the journey through life with her. She's so lovable. But it's so hard to love people who are not very lovable, who can be jerks at times. It's hard to love them, right? But God loves those who drive you crazy. God is nuts about them. He loves the world. So we see the object of God's love. Next, we see the measure of God's love. Jesus is that measure that he gave his only son. We see the measure of God's love for the world because biblical love always leads to action. Okay? Ladies, 
Remember that verse. Remember that definition. That biblical love always leads to action. Don't let some man tell you he loves you and he doesn't show it to you. Okay? Love always, always leads to action. And we see action. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. That's action. So we see the object. We see the measure. Next, we see the purpose. We see the purpose of God's love. What's his purpose in verse 16? His purpose is that we, the world, that we may have eternal life. So the cross... It was a display, like when Jesus died on the cross, this showed us how much he loved us. But it wasn't just, it wasn't just a display of his love. It had a purpose. Jesus going to the cross is not just some abstract lesson to demonstrate his love for us. See, all mankind comes into this world with a major problem, something the Bible calls condemnation. Condemnation means to have a strong disapproval of something. Like my taste buds have shown condemnation towards mustard. My taste buds have a strong disapproval of its existence. Though John 3.16 has often been quoted, you know, it's a super popular verse. I think even people outside church culture at least knows John 3.16. Maybe can't quote it completely, but at least maybe know a little bit about it. And has this been the most you know, often quoted verse, maybe in the Bible, definitely in John? I, I wonder if verse 17 is not becoming more popular today than John 3.16. See, John 3.17 is the heartbeat of our culture. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Wow. Doesn't that sound nice? I mean, what incredible news for us. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He just wants to be our buddy, our friend, our pal. The church, you guys, you guys need to stop talking about condemnation so much. Jesus didn't come to condemn. Why are you preaching this message of condemnation? You need to stop talking about condemnation. All you're doing is bringing everybody down. The reason I'm so anxious is because all these Christians are talking about how, you know, I need to live a certain way. If you just stop preaching all of that stuff, I wouldn't be so anxious. Just let me live my life. You do you. You probably heard that phrase, right? See, this might sound good on the surface, but it's, not, it's just not biblical. You know, if you just keep reading, if you, again... If you just put it back in its context, you see that that's not what, that's not how this verse should be understood. So let's keep reading. Let's put verse 17 back into its context. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he might be saved, or in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So, why didn't Jesus come to condemn us? It's quite simple. 
Because we were already condemned. You don't have to condemn something that's already condemned. This is the same logic, same reason why Jesus wouldn't come today to take away my hair. It's already happened. Jesus didn't come to this earth to condemn the world. He would be wasting his time. I don't know how many of you have noticed this, but Huntington has done a lot of work in the last couple of years. They've been going around condemning houses. Have you noticed that? You drive by and you see sticker, a big sticker on the door, boarded up windows, and then they you know, put that house on the schedule to be torn down. That's condemnation. They're condemning that house, putting a label on it. Jesus didn't come to the earth putting labels on people. You're condemned. Look at you. Oh, goodness. Can't believe you did that. You're condemned. He didn't have to because we were all condemned. Here is Nicodemus who he's talking to, one of the most religious, moral men in the entire world. And Jesus says, unless you, Nicodemus, are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. I mean, does that frighten any of you? That if Nicodemus wasn't religious enough, good enough, that he couldn't enter the kingdom of God? This sounds like terrible news for us. There's no way I'm going to be as righteous as one of the Pharisees. See, Jesus didn't come to label people condemned. Jesus came to repair, to replace, to restore what was already condemned. See, verse 19 and following show us just how wicked the world actually is. Look at, look at, these, look at these verses, what it says about mankind. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. You can easily change out the word light there and put in Jesus. For everyone who does wicked things hates Jesus and does not come to Jesus lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. See, people love their own desires more than they desire Christ. That's what this is showing. In fact, we see that, that not only they just love their own desires, they hate the light. They hate Jesus. But Why? Why would anyone hate Jesus? Because he exposes the very thing that they love. See, there's this battle going on for your heart. There's only one throne, and we want to put something on that throne, and Jesus is like, there's no way I'm going to allow that. So he has this battle with your heart. I want your heart. And you're saying, no, 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 I want to chase after these things whether it's money, power, influence, respect of others, a relationship. I want that thing to be on my throne, not you, Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you miserable until I'm, your, I'm on your, the throne of your heart. And this is why you begin to hate Jesus. 
because he begins to rip things away that you love. This brings us to the fourth truth from John 3.16. The last truth we see from John 3.16 is we see the, the means by which we come to enjoy his great love. So what is the means of how we enjoy God's love? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Notice that it doesn't say that whoever works hard to impress God will be saved or that whoever attends church, is involved in a community group or community service, that they will be saved. But whoever believes, the word believed here in verse 16, it's the same word used at the end of chapter 2, that pisteo. And I think the one that we should understand is to trust. Not, not to have this knowledge of. Even the demons have a knowledge of Jesus. It's this idea of trusting. What Jesus wants us to do is not to impress him, to get our, you know, our Easter clothes on or whatever, or to try to gain his attention, or try to pay for our own sins. What he wants us to do is simply Trust him. Trust him at his word. Being born again is a working of the Spirit of God. We saw this in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You and I cannot force someone to believe. We can't force them to trust in Christ. We are to help them by telling them how they can be born again and to, just to pray for them. So this month, we have been, um, we've passed out these books, these little prayer books. They're out in the lobby if you didn't get one. It's called Who's Your One? It's a prayer guide. Just every day this month, you're just praying for someone that God's put in your life. There's no way you can convince that person to trust in Christ. It's a working of God. It's a working of the Holy Spirit. And so every day, I've just been praying for my one, that God would just change his heart. Um, so pick these up. Keep praying for your one. And then Jesus, looking at Nicodemus, he uses a story from the Old Testament to tell Nicodemus how to be born again. Look back at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You know, I hate when people do this to me. When, when, when you know, somebody asks a question, and, and I say, I'm, I'm not really sure. And they're like, aren't you a pastor? <laughs> yes, okay, but I don't, I don't, you guys who've been around me, you know that I don't even pretend that I know everything. <laughs> I'm quick to say, I'm not sure, but let's try to figure this out together. So Jesus gives him the, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
If I have told you earthly things and you not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So here in verses 14 and 15, Jesus references a really strange, bizarre passage in Numbers 21. The context of Numbers 21 is the Israelites, they've left Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, and now they're on this longer than they had planned journey through the wilderness. Numbers 21, verse 4 says this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to go, um, way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Did you catch that? We, we loathe. There's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What food are you loathing that you say you don't have, but you, they're just not content? They're just grumbling and complaining. God has been faithful to give them manna every day. Then the Lord, verse 6, sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Okay, this is where we just like, I wasn't expecting it to take this way. This is where it gets bizarre. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What a strange passage. People say the Bible is not engaging. Like, this has your attention. Here are people who believed. They, they all at least trusted when they were in Egypt. They were believing God, that God was going to take them out of Egypt. So they believed. They, they'd seen all these signs. But it seems like their belief was just a belief in the signs like we saw in John chapter 2. When the signs wore off, so did their trust. They grumbled, they complained. So God sent serpents, and these serpents bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, for those of you who are in one of our community groups, we've been going through the book of Judges. We've seen this similar pattern over and over that we see here. When people begin to suffer, even maybe you sit in your own life, a friend's life. When, you, when people begin to suffer, usually you will see a cry for help. You hit bottom. There's nowhere else to look but up. That's what we see going on in verse 7. The people come to Moses and say, We have sinned. Please tell God to take these serpents away. Then in in the Lord's kindness and his mercy, he gives them this remedy. Strange one, but nevertheless, he gives them a remedy. He told Moses to make his own serpent, put it on a pole, and everyone who has been bitten 
when they see your serpent, when they look at it, they will live. They will be healed. Just think about how bizarre this is. Hey, everyone, quiet down. I've got some important news. Let me have your attention. If you've been bitten by one of these fiery serpents, it's painful. You know, you've seen others die. Got good news for you. See this snake, this bronze serpent on the end of this pole? Just, just look at it, and you'll be better. Well, some of you, you've been sick. You've gone to the doctor. What if the doctor comes in, and this is his remedy for you? You've been diagnosed, terminal. Doctor says, oh, no worry. See that staff over there? Just look at it. You'll be good to go. Takes a lot of faith, right? Just look at the snake. They may be thinking, I don't, I don't have to make any sacrifices. I don't have to give a portion of our, the money to be better, to be healed. I just have to look at the serpent. It sounds so silly, right? Maybe even simple. What only sounds silly, maybe to those who aren't bitten, those who are dying, you know, it just depends on how desperate you are. If you're desperate enough, you will try any medication, don't you? The more desperate you are, the more pain you are in, the more likely you will try something that seems so silly. If you realize that you're going to die because there's something inside you, then you're probably willing to try just about anything, even something as bizarre and as silly as looking at a bronze snake at the end of a stick. Fast forward 1,500 years. Here's Jesus setting with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, speaking to this very moral, religious man. And of all of the thousands of verses we have, thousands of stories from the Old Testament history, thousands of years, he brings up this Old Testament passage. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, and as a result, people lived... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus is now referring to what we just called a few days ago Good Friday. Jesus is saying, just as Moses' serpent on the end of the stick will heal those infected back in the, the, the desert, so Christ, the Son of Man, will be lifted on another stick, another pole, a cross shaped pole, that those who look to him, those who believe in him that have been infected by this disease we call sin, they will have eternal life. If you're going to be healed, if you're, go if you're going to gain eternal life, it's going to be the result of his sovereign grace, no other way. See, that's why it seems so silly. It makes it, makes it come by faith. It's not by your good works. The power's all on this end, not on your end. See, on the cross, Jesus provides the way we are to have this new birth. By his death, we have life. Our new birth is grounded in Jesus' death. 
To many people, the gospel sounds just as bizarre, just as silly as someone looking at a serpent on the end of a stick, right? I mean, you, you, you've all talked to these people. You mean I just believe in Jesus and I'm, I'm, my sins are forgiven? That sounds too good to be true. I just have to put my trust in Jesus. And by doing that, like that he died for my sin, he appeased the wrath of God. You mean I don't have to get my life together first? Don't have to work harder? I don't have to give a certain amount of money to some charity or churches. I don't have to do a bunch of good things. I just have to confess. Confess my sin. Trust that Jesus, that his death covered my sin, his resurrection shows that he has power to, to change my life. I don't know. It seems so simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, we benefit not by being wealthy like Nicodemus or being religious church-going folk. We benefit, we gain by trusting in his power to cleanse us from our sin and to give us his spirit. I think this passage forces us to ask a question. I think that's probably what Jesus was trying to get Nicodemus to do. I think the question for you this morning is, on this Easter morning, is what are you looking? What are you looking towards? What are you looking at for healing? What are you placing your trust in thinking that that thing will bring healing? Is it a relationship? If I just had the right relationship, then I would begin to feel better. Is it, is it money, making certain amounts, or, or a certain job, having respect of others? If it's not the death and resurrection of Jesus that you're gazing into, then you're standing on sinking sand. Only Jesus can remove your sin. He can give you that strong, solid foundation. Each of you have an opportunity this morning to, to gaze into something tangible that you look at and what Christ has done for us. This morning, we are going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of what it took to make us whole again. That Christ's body had to die. His blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This morning, when you come, you look at those elements. The first cup will be on the bottom. It's just a little piece of bread. Represents his body that was broken for us. The top cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of of your sin, for my sin. So you get to gaze this morning at that cup. Is that where you find your hope? Or are you finding it in something of this world? So if you're a guest this morning, we invite you to participate with us. If you're a follower of Christ, then you're more than welcome to come, even though you're not a member of this church. Um, just come from the outside and work our way back. Um, but maybe there's some of you, you've been, you've been trusting, you've been gazing in your own merit, in your own goodness. Like, look how good I've been. Maybe like Nicodemus, maybe. I've not really done anything that bad. 
You know, that, that's your standard. That's not God's standard of goodness. God's standard is perfection. And I don't, I'm not looking at anyone who's perfect this morning. You're not looking at someone who's perfect. We're all broken sinners. So if you're looking in your own goodness, you, you've never looked to, to Jesus as the remedy, then today's the day for you. Today's the day where you can confess your sin, look to Jesus who was lifted up on a stick so that you could be healed. If that's you and you want to be saved today, I'm going to be in the back during the Lord's Supper. If, if, you, if you want love just to talk, come, come to me and want to know, like, how can I be saved? Or just honestly, you just ask the person who's been, or the person who invited you today. I'm sure they would, they've already been praying. They would love to have this conversation with you. But whenever you're ready, you come and participate in the Lord's Supper. And if you want just prayer for anything, I'll be over here in the back.